Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. You want the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Hey, everybody. Welcome back into the Determined Truth Podcast. I'm Vinny. I am here with Rob. How's it going, Rob? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm living the dream. I can't complain. Uh, so, <laughs> well, there's always something to complain about, but why should I? Uh, hey, we're, this, this podcast is something where if, if you've been a regular listener, you know that we do things like we might talk about a book of the Bible or genres of the Bible or something that has to do with biblical studies. We might talk about something theological in nature. Uh, you know, th- there's a lot of those types of things that we've talked about. We also bring on guests and talk about various things that are happening within the church. Cause we believe that uh, one of the things that uh, we can do with this podcast, and it's definitely a uh, passion of Rob's is to challenge the, the church to be the church and to equip the church in a multiple of areas. And so today we're going to do another kind of uh, an interview with someone who might not be well known. Uh, but Rob, talk about like what's the what's the genesis of today's episode? Why why are we doing this? Yeah, again, we're going to piggyback on our last conversation with Tony Kim, and I hope you were able to listen to that. We're just talking about the church globally. I, one of the things I think it's so important for us to remember is that the church is a universal body that we're members of one body of Christ globally. And we're not just, it's not all about America. It's not all about our churches. So we brought in Tony last time with a great interview, just talking about the global church, the persecuted church, the underground church. What does an underground church mean? What does this mean? What does that mean? And his experiences with that. And it was a great conversation. So today we're going to bring in Najee Hashem to talk more specifically about the church in the Middle East. And so we're excited to have Najee with us. Hey, I hope everyone enjoys our conversation with Najee Hashem. Thank you, Vinny. It's uh, wonderful to have you here, Najee. Uh, thank you for coming on our, show, our program. My pleasure. It's an honor to be with you, Brother Rob. So uh, Najee Hashem is a PhD clinical and cultural psychologist. He's a public speaker. He's an author. He's an ordained minister. He's a visiting professor. He's a cross-cultural worker. He's a caregiver at large. He's a Lebanese-American who's involved in international service and training. He does humanitarian aid. He does a lot of conference speaking and counseling. He's got that. He does a lot of editing and writing and publishing, volunteer work, consultation. Uh, he's also involved in pastoral care. He's an ordained minister global networking and caring for ministers and caregivers. He used to be a staff psychologist with Minerth Meyer New Life Clinics in Seattle, Washington. He served as a visiting scholar at the Graduate School of Intercultural Studies at Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena and the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley, California. He's an active member of many national and international organizations. He's got about 100 publications, and he's currently an associate with Member Care International and non-resident scholar at Baylor University's Institute for Studies in Religion and Interdisciplinary Research Center. He usually divides his time between the United States and Beirut, Lebanon, and we've been very privileged to get him in the midst of all that here while he's in the States for a time to be with us. So thank you again for coming. My pleasure. Najee, tell us about your family a little bit. Yes, thank you. I uh, grew up in a town called Alay, above Beirut, uh, in a moderate family. I have three siblings. 
and I have two sisters and one brother. And uh, we went to a nun's school in town and we go to the stream Arabic French together and caught the English language along the way. So most, most Lebanese people move between three languages easily. Then I went to Beirut uh, to study some more and I graduated from an institute of technology. Many people don't know that I have a background in electronics and I worked at the American University of Beirut hospital in maintaining, repairing the medical equipments, biomedical engineering. I love that work and so forth. However, due to the civil troubles and fightings and other people's wars on our land, I could not continue and always wanted to study some Bible and theology and culture. So I moved to East Beirut and did that. I still have most of my family in Lebanon, spread between Beirut, North Beirut, and Tripoli, which is the second large city in Lebanon. And the Bible mentions Lebanon 75 times at least. The Lord brought me up there and brought me back to the West to build the bridges. That's awesome. Hey, Najee, one of the things that we like to do on this uh, program, especially when we bring people in who have global experience, because most of our listeners are going to be American and in the West. And one of the things we want to do is just open the eyes of people. For, for me, it's been exciting. Uh, and I know for our listeners, it's been exciting. So even just to paint the picture of uh, what's happening in Lebanon, because I know you spend time there. You've recently spent a lot of time there. And we know that like some of the reports that are coming out are saying like 70% of Lebanese are experiencing some sort of food insecurity. They don't have enough food or money to buy food. And even the, the United States, uh, you know, the governmental programs are saying that, hey, we might be seeing the beginning of one of the largest peacetime economic crises in Lebanon history. Like, can you tell us a little bit about what you've seen and just kind of paint that picture for our audience? Yes, this is a difficult question, both to summarize and articulate that in a few minutes and emotionally to relive uh, and uh, share compassionately what my people are going through. <clears throat> what I've seen, what I've experienced, just for the sake of uh, to begin with that picture, it was unlike any other time during my 20 years going and spending several months. There were a lot of struggles before. There were some troubles. There was some serious controlling from either Syria and their secret services, and then some wars, some troubles, but not such social deterioration and uh, fragmentation. And uh, almost all the glues of societies are falling apart. Uh, what I've seen: a lot of broken souls, broken minds, broken. Uh, existential agony, if I may say, you know. I have seen the Lebanese middle class maintained through many, many years of crisis, traumas, tragedies, uh, other people, wars on our land. That was maintained. The Lebanese pound currency was maintained its strength until now. The Lebanese currency has deteriorated, dropped significantly and kept dropping and dropping that people said, where are we going? How can we survive? And then the middle class is disappearing. That is very serious and very, very significant uh, development. Never 
that the middle class could not sustain itself or people could not maintain. Even when you don't have airport or electricity or something, communities would gather together and build their own mini con contour and then little community and then smuggle vegetables and water and distribute things among themselves if that case was, and I lived in those. But now seems like the ground is falling under your feet and you don't have any place to go and you cannot hold to anything, no branches around. So the level of poverty is, is increasing and people, some of them are falling below poverty line even. Some, they go to the store and they count their money and I've seen that. And then they ask for a couple of items and they say, oh, sorry, I can't get that one. I only need those. Many times when I'm standing there and I saw this lady, for example, I come and say, hello, auntie, uh, I am your neighbor here. Do you mind if I buy this for you and your family? Would you accept that as a gift from me? Because I took with me some dollars and the dollar will go way into some people in the street uh, would come and say, Mr. You look like a nice gentleman. Do you have any work for us? You know, even we clean your home, you clean your car. Don't give us money, buy us a basket of food. Shop owners in the street where I live, I live in a, in a, in a family home in a high rise fifth floor. So we go down and visit with, many stores have been closed because they cannot run the business. And the owner, shop owners, you know, they not smiling, they're kind of gloomy. Uh, they follow the Lebanese currency compared to the dollar and the euro. And uh, they say, why did you come to Lebanon, Mr. Naji? You know, go back. I say, no, no, I want to come and here be with you and be with my family. And, but we, we, our trouble, well, I want to suffer with you. So now, Many are surviving, and those are surviving have people outside Lebanon sending them fresh money, you know, by, by wiring. People go to 10, 15 pharmacy that open in order to find something similar to what they used to take. So life is, is agony. And for our North American audience here, I say, and I'm part of a lot of psychological associations, and they talk about the trauma of coronavirus and the children, you know, having so much stress and anxiety because they didn't go to school and they have to put a mask and they're still at home. I say, okay, this is uh, inconvenient. This is discomforting. But remember, you still have electricity 24 hours. You enter a room and flisk the switch. You have internet 24. You open the tab, you have drinking water. You have hot water. You go to the bank, it's open, and you can cash any money as much as you want. You go to the store, it's full. You go to the pharmacy. Not so in many countries of the world, even in my beloved country, which was middle class uh, Switzerland of the Middle East at some point. I was just going to ask you about that, Najee. Paint us a picture of what Lebanon was, what it was like before the, the situation. So people have an idea where it's come from and now where it's at. It is uh, a paradise. It was a paradise. International in its cities and urban. It has small industries, a lot of agriculture, tourism from all over the world would, would love to come. 
from the East, the West, the Arabic, the English, the Americans, the Europeans, Center for Education, has more universities and colleges in Lebanon per capita than any other countries I know of. And uh, regardless of your mother tongue, you can go there and obtain a free visa for several months. And you don't need to learn even two, three words of Lebanese. You can converse in English, in French, in Italian. In... Uh, unfortunately, one of the disadvantages of Lebanon was its geographical location. Even though right. it's pretty, it's beautiful, East Mediterranean, the gate of the East, the West, mm -hmm. Europe, North Africa. But the surroundings and the political structure of the countries around and the competition to be regional superpowers. And, you know, normally small countries pay the price of the surrounding bad politics because they push them and pull them and then yeah and one of the problems also with lebanon now is the influx of refugees it's had a lot of refugees over the course of time i know palestinian refugees but have you gotten more refugees during the syrian crisis and absolutely let's step back a little bit in history in in around 1948 in the same time when israel became a political nation Many Palestinians left or out, whatever, and half a million came to Lebanon. And Lebanon, through negotiation with the Arabic countries, say, you know, you're close by, take them and we'll give you a few millions. And it's a matter of a few months, they will return. Half a million. And now, 60 years later, they are still in Lebanon and they reproduced people who had the key for more, still having the key, then they are dying. Some are integrated in Lebanese society, some are not. That was a blessing and a curse for Lebanon, because we want to be open and helpful and friendly and hospitable. And that turned to be a curse because many groups can establish themselves. The Palestinians started their PLO, fighting militia, and start bothering Israel. Israel come and will bomb Lebanon everywhere. You know, you can't touch the Israeli military because they are brutal, you know, in their responses in the self-defense, you know, cliche. And who, who pays the price? Lebanon and the Lebanese. In the invasion of Iraq, about quarter million at least of Iraqis came to Lebanon. And Lebanon received them. Now the troubles and the uh, militias wars, like 12 wars, whatever happened in Syria, and the Syrians start to cross the border. Very few legally, most of them illegal. So now we have about at least for a country of 5.5 million or 6 million Lebanese, we have at least 2 million Syrians in Lebanon. And they're competing for work, they're competing right. for rent, they're uh, marrying young, they're having large families and children and children. And these are not registered anywhere. Now, Syria doesn't have the 12 wars they were raging before. Why don't these? And the Lebanese churches rushed to help these refugees, especially the, the, the Syrians. Actually, I was going to ask you about that. I'm so glad you brought this up because uh, there's a legitimate concern that a government should have in saying, 
hey, how many refugees should we bring in and, and how is this going to impact our you know, economic system and do we have infrastructure? And those are legitimate things that a government has the duty to uh, respond with. My question would be, as someone who has is very connected to the church in Lebanon. How do how do the Lebanese Christians respond to something like that? I mean, I'm thinking even in America, like if we have, you know, 350 million people living in America, like if we had 100 million refugees come in, because exactly. it's somewhat somewhat proportionate. Exactly. And and I know how some of the conversations go in America regarding Christians and how we, you know, we just we struggle through this immigration question. Yes. How, how have Lebanese Christians responded to this? Not from a governmental standpoint, but just how, how does the church receive that? When a crisis, a tragedy, and a uh, trauma, and uh, some conflicts and things uh, happen, all Lebanese <clears throat> rush to help each other. And then this presence of community, the glue in society is very strong, like extended family and neighbors and friends and relatives and in they rush to help each other. The beautiful thing about warm culture, Eastern culture, is that if you suffer, you don't suffer alone. People don't let you. They will come, they will knock on your door, they'll bring you food, they will stay, say, will stay with you if you go through any loss, any illness, any struggle, any tragedy. While in the West, they retreat, they say privacy and don't interfere unless they ask and so forth. So that's one of the little differences. So Lebanese rush into helping each other, even though if they struggle, if you struggle and you fall, they, they pull you out and then pull you up. And then if they do that, you pull them up in turn. Now, all communities of faith, to be, to be fair, including Muslims, Shiites, Sunnis, Druze, and then and the Christians, let's not forget about Lebanon is historically part of the ancient Christian churches. And when you talk about that in the States, most people think Protestant evangelical. Those are recent churches in, in Lebanon and the Middle East. Some of them cooperate well and respect the ancient churches as their grandparents, some they don't. And I always tell pastors and priests, and I have friends and both, don't talk against each other, cooperate. We have much in common and we are becoming minority in the Middle East. We cannot afford to, you know, pick up on each other. Now to your question about the churches, every community of faith, every Christian church, regardless if it is ancient, Orthodox, Syrian, Syrian, uh, Maronite, Catholic, they rushed and they organized things either among themselves or within their group. And they started to hosting families, started to cook for them, give them food, give them clothes. And they organized combined efforts. Now, we must mention the major tragedy which happened, you know, after the multiple traumas, multiple crises. Uh, a sudden explosion happened in Lebanon about a year ago, uh, August 4, 2020, at the port of Beirut. It was absolutely huge and uh, all the world took notice and it shook Lebanon and the impact of the explosion was felt in Cyprus, way in the sea. And that was classified as the of, of a nuclear proportion, 
it devastated third of Lebanese capital. And uh, about half a million became almost homeless overnight. Thousands were injured, hundreds were dead, Const destruction everywhere, it's like a war zone. So on top of the political uh, crisis, on top of the economic crisis, on top of the coronavirus crisis, which Lebanon struggled with a lot, and we didn't get the vaccine easily because we didn't have money to buy that. And then those who want to donate it left it till the last, you know, many people are not vaccinated. Came the explosion, the, the port explosion. And then on, on top of also the Syrian refugees, you know, like two million. And then, so all those bringing Lebanon down over and over. So many churches and communities of faith and organization rushed to help cleaning the streets, uh, repairing windows if there are fine wood or glass, and uh, bringing food, taking people into their homes, you know, because suddenly you have a home and windows and doors, suddenly you don't have any. So they take them to the mountain or the suburbs. And those who have faith and uh, come from a Christian background, people knew that they are receiving help because of the Christian faith and because of the cross of Christ and the gospel of Christ, regardless if it's shared explicitly or implicitly. Of course, evangelicals are very verbal, verbal in mm -hmm. the, the witness. Yeah. Many Christians, I think, in the United States don't seem to understand Christianity in countries like Lebanon. But tell us a little bit about uh, the church in Lebanon and what Christianity in, in Lebanon is like. Yeah, yeah. Lebanon, the Christian population there are mosaic and tapestry like its subcultures. You know, they have a lot of subcultures and a lot of mentalities. And, so, and that's true for the Christianity because we have about 12, 18, uh, 15 type of Christian faith and background, as I said, from the Assyrian to the very ancient, to the Orthodox, to the Greek, to the Antioch, to the Maronite and Catholic. They are a great witness. Some of them are silent witness, as they, 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 they're called. Some are verbal witness. Some they cooperate well with each other, some they don't. But historically, Lebanon was, culturally speaking, a Christian majority country. Like 40 years ago, the population was about 70 to 80% Christian background. Now it's like 30 to 35%. Why? Because Christian families don't reproduce much. Many, they migrate because they have friends, connections in the West. So that's what time brought it down. And uh, of course, talking about the general Middle East, we may touch about the, the condition of Christianity in the whole Middle East which is decreasing substantially by, by the week. In terms of your question about the concept of born again and conversion and evangelism and uh, the four laws style, you know, lists, you know. The, it's not my question, by the way. It's just, I, I just think a lot of the listeners might be thinking things like that. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm good with you. I'm good with the church over there. But I know. I think, well, when I think we, the people here don't understand it. When we were together in, in the conference uh, many years ago, you mentioned that, that uh, your understanding and then your, your uh, uh, well grasp of, of ancient Christianity and then compare it to the evangelical linear type or list or push button type. Yeah. 
my friend, uh, the East in general, they think in a circular way, not in a linear way. And the Middle East, you know, the Christian faith is a journey, is a process. They don't talk, use the language much about conversion and radical change overnight. Once you are totally in the darkness, then totally now in the light. Once you are totally pagan, now you're totally Christian. They don't comprehend or use that or Eastern Christianity is a journey of faith. It's a process. It's growing. Now, some of them, they have the grace of God and then the born from above, but with, they, without knowing it, maybe. Uh, but we are not only the only people who know the Lord well or love the Lord or uh, know the Bible or know how to read the gospel. Yeah, amen to that, yeah. Yeah, when people hear, you know, they start to say Christian, I say, what do you mean by Christian for my American friends? <clears throat> someone born in a Christian family, someone goes to a Christian service, or someone who has some deep, close relationship, his follower of Christ, true committed believer, you know. Because the term Christian and Muslim and Jew is a social term, mm-hmm. but the term of follower, of believer, is a spiritual uh, kind of thing. So we make that distinction to some degree, and uh, we don't always. So I say people who are going to work cross-culturally, you need to change your languages and your terminology many times. Naji, if we were to, you, you've painted a wonderful picture so far of even just kind of transporting us and giving us this word pictures of, of looking at uh, things different. And, and I think much of what you're speaking about, especially in terms of conversion experiences and more of a, a circular way of thinking about faith rather than a linear way of thinking. I mean, it, that's so countercultural to a Western mind. And so I think it's just helpful to realize, oh, there's more Christians in the world than just uh, this American way of thinking about Christianity, right? What is a good way for the American Christian to stay informed about what's happening with our brothers and sisters in the Middle East? What are some just practical ways we could go about that? Yeah, uh, number one, to be informed from international sources, because the American media, they don't portray much about such details. And if anything, would be too brief, even on the social, political, you know, uh, Number two, figure out what are some of the good ministries happening there on the ground. And I know some are generous, they would like to help, you know, and there are several ministries, general, specific. I also urge people who would like some, like to go and help tangibly and be on the ground. I say, before you go, get some cross-cultural training, study more about the Middle East mentality and Lebanese. Uh, social life, don't jump and start some work and so forth. And let me here between the brackets say something about the American zeal for ministry that is not sometimes helpful because it lacks the wisdom of ministry. Zeal alone is not good enough. Knowledge and wisdom alone is not good enough. We need both. Some now with the new trend of teen churches, community churches and emerging churches, they start sending people to start start working in this country, that country. They don't have the seasoning of the mainstream missionary movement who learned uh, from their mistakes and through the testing of time. So I would encourage those 
don't jump into the field, quote unquote, and then start something there on your own. This is not like United States open land. There people are connected. Go as a visitor, meet the leaders of the community, of the churches, introduce yourself, say that we would like to do some ministry here. We need your blessing. We would like to cooperate with you. And then find ways to cooperate and come. Otherwise, it will create confusion and competition. And then there are a lot of uh, also organizations that uh, are not coming to the news, but they are reporting about what's happening in terms of ministry, both physical, social, and spiritual. And they report about how many non-Christian background people are coming to faith in the Messiah, in the Isa of the Quran, in the Christ, seeing visions, seeing dreams at night. Uh, there is some healings happening. And sometimes they say, you know, we go to this center for receiving some help, some food and items, and we come here and then, but you are a little bit different, even though they are Christian and very mm -hmm. kind and very nice. Mm -hmm. But there is some kind of deeper love and there is some kind of grace. There is some kind of spark in your eyes. Mm. And when you pray for us, you talk to God as God is your friend. We're mm. not used to that. Tell us more. Many stories, they come to a center. They have services especially for them and Bible study for them and teaching them crafts and then things for the children and tons and tons of activities. So these women and children cling on the people who are serving them and the young people and they, and they want to stay with them. They want to, some, you know, children never went to school for five, six years, some of them for 10 now. So they, some churches establish a school teaching for them and volunteers. Uh, some of these women, or men even, they see a dream, and in the dream they see a white man with a white gown, with a light around. They say, I am Isa that you read about in the Quran. Isa is the name of Christ in the Quran. Al-Masih in Arabic. Al-Messiah uh, in the Hebrew. So they say, I care about you. Uh, some of them see his hand coming, touching them, and they healed. Sometimes they say, go and ask a pastor or a priest or uh, someone from the church nearby or find an Injil gospel and read more about me or learn more about me. So we're hearing about these visions and dreams more and more. And uh, since they are out of their context, the opposition is minimum. But the last time I preached in a church, maybe you saw that, Rob, pictures of women with the scarf. They come and sit, you know, and then. So sometimes people who migrated to Europe or Africa or something, they can be open to new ideology and new faith rather than when they are in their home. Mm -hmm. So God is using that in a great way. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Najee, just thank you so much for joining us. And I hope you can have been able to, our listeners have been able to grasp exactly what you're saying, that here's this country that's been so much of a modern country and advanced and civilized and uh, trying to be peacemakers in the middle of turmoil all around them and the 
a church that's been vibrant for 2000 years and with a great heritage and that they're just struggling and they're struggling and everyone's struggling. The culture's struggling for survival and the church is really doing everything they can. I just love the testimony you gave about how the, the church is just being Christians and just being Jesus around them is what's transforming people around them. It's just di dynamic. So thank you so much for joining us. I just, we so much appreciate it. My pleasure. Lord bless you and keep uh, Lebanon and the Middle East in your prayers yeah. and the whole Christian presence in the Middle East. So it will not be void of that witness in the years and the case to come. Amen. And if there's one thing that we could take away from this and even our conversation with Tony Kim last week, it's breaking that stigma that we have in America that says it's America versus the Middle East mm -hmm. or it's the Christians versus the Middle East. And if, if there's one thing that we're being exposed to is saying, hey, Christians in America, ambassadors for Christ who live in embassies of the kingdom of God in America, which we call churches, we have embassies of the kingdom of God, which are called churches in places like Lebanon. And so it's not the Middle East versus Amen. us. Our brothers and sisters are over there. We need to pray for them. We need to support them uh, and, and and remember that it's, it's not a binary, it's us against them. We are part of this. Our family members are over there and we need to pray for them regularly. Hey guys, lots of fun in this conversation. Brother Najee, great talking with you and meeting you for you for the first time. Uh, it, it's, it's just amazing to see how we all have that connection as uh, brothers and sisters in Christ. So I have uh, honored to be able to meet you uh, God bless you and what you do for his kingdom. And I uh, hope everyone enjoyed this conversation. We'll definitely have more of these as we continue on the Determined Truth podcast. We will see everyone soon. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.
Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.